freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. Thank you, Tom Morello, for our anthem, Let Freedom Ring, and for always jolting us awake, sharpening us up, and giving us courage for the work ahead. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malika Leem and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we tune in and look uneasily at the world we've inherited and as we search for spaces of enlightenment and liberation, places where we can develop our freedom dreams and organize our revolutions. I'm broadcasting from the traditional lands of the Hupa, Yurok, and Karuk peoples, and Malik is joining me from the traditional home of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is When I'm Gone by Phil Oakes. There's no place in this world where I'll belong when I'm gone And I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't feel the flowing of the time when I'm gone And all the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone My pen won't pour a lyric line when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here and I won't breathe the bracing air when I'm gone And I can't even worry about my cares when I'm gone Won't be asked to do my share when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't be running from the rain when I'm gone And I can't even suffer from the pain when I'm gone Can't say who's to praise and who's to blame when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it The sun when I'm gone, and the evenings and the mornings will be one when I'm gone. Can't be singing louder than the guns when I'm gone, so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here. All my days won't be dances of delight when I'm gone, and the sands will be shifting from my sight when I'm gone. Can't add my name into the fight when I'm gone, so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here. I won't be laughing at the lies when I'm gone And I can't question how or when or why when I'm gone Can't live proud enough to die when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here That was Phil Oaks, When I'm Gone Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write Where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere the nowhere of our freedom seminar, and the nowhere of utopia. This is a time to put words on the page without any editing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Add a verse to Phil's song, a short inventory of what you guess you'd better do as long as you're here. Okay, start writing and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, 
Under the Tree Podcast for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. We have a special guest in our Freedom Seminar today. This is part of our guest speaker series, something we call Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours. This is a time when we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political moment and about what the known demands of us now. We try to liberate our radical imaginations and ask ourselves how our community, our city, and our world might be otherwise. I can think of no one I'd rather be in conversation with this morning than Jay Gillen, a visionary, a wise and loving teacher who challenges me to stretch my thinking about teaching, about organizing, and about what is to be done in order to create an effective insurgency and overcome the sorry mess we see all around us, that is, the cruelty of the status quo. Jay has taught and organized in and around Baltimore City Public Schools since 1987, developed the Peer Tutoring Baltimore Algebra Project, and has written a couple of absolutely life-changing books for me. The first one I read was Educating for Insurgency, uh, The Roles of Young People in Schools of Poverty. Jay, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here, Bill. I'm so honored and delighted. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. And, you know, I'm, I said that you stretch my thinking and you remember how we met, I assume. You remember when we met or how that came to be? Well, I remember the, the, the manuscript reaching you in California, if that's what you're yes, talking about. Yes, I, I was in rural California and we had never met. And uh, you wrote me and asked me if I could uh, write a little jacket review for your upcoming book. And I thought, well, it's going to be very hard. I said, well, I don't have enough bandwidth for you to send it to me. And you said, well, I'll FedEx it to you or UPS it to you or something. And I thought, well, that's going to be difficult and I don't have time really. But then you did send it to me and I had about, I think you said then you have to get me the blurb in about five days or something. I mean, it was ridiculously short time. I thought this is never going to work, but I was sitting by a river and I opened the, the, the pages and I was so taken that it sucked me in and I read the thing in a, in a day and it's one of the most profound books I've ever read on education, and it continues to be that for me. I put it right up there with Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks and Maxine Green as an influential text. So, Educating for Insurgency, say a word about that book, and, and we'll go from there. Well, thanks, Bill, and um, I appreciate your, um, your jump, jumping on it when you did uh, back then. Um, you know, the 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 book is really comes out of the work of Bob Moses and the Algebra Project, and I um, often say that I haven't had an original idea in twenty five years because I I copy Bob's thinking on a lot of things. Um, that's good. That's but, good advice for everybody. Find a mentor, copy their ideas, and, and, right. and don't call it copying. Call it collaging and sampling. <laughs> exactly. Um, so. Uh, a, a huge gap in in how we think about education um, has to do with not looking at things from the perspectives of the young people that we teach. And um, so, you know, one of the one of the lessons I think for good teachers is that the important thing is not for the student to figure out 
what's in the teacher's head, but for the teacher to figure out what's in the student's head. And that's what all good teachers are really doing. So educating for insurgency was like, let's let's see what happens if we look from the perspective of students who were being abused by school systems, and particularly black students in America being abused by school systems. What is it that they want and they need? What do they experience? And that's really what the book is about. Yeah, and you 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 use the word insurgency, organizing an insurgency, and you do borrow that from uh, from the student nonviolent coordinating committee. Say a bit more about that. Yeah, um, well, if you think about what happens in um, the the great majority of um, public high schools um, for young people in poverty today, um, they're wrecking the schools. They're making sure the schools can't do what the schools want to do. Um, they make sure that the curriculums don't work. They make sure that the attendance monitoring systems don't work. They make sure that the teachers are not able to efficiently administer the, um, the system that the system is trying to administer um, through their um, largely uh, not yet organized insurgency. So they create chaos um, intentionally um, sometimes just peripherally, but they create chaos. And the question is, what happens if we could organize that energy and have uh, the same type of disruption with uh, a target of, of recreating the education system completely? That's so, the insurgency. So, so, so why do they, why, what is the resistance based on? Why the resistance? Why the the, the unwillingness to go along and all the good intentioned people and resources say, come on, come on, get with it, go along. Why the resistance? Well, the, the structure of the education system, as you know, many of your wonderful gift, guests have pointed out, um, reinforces uh, class, caste, and race dynamics. And the young people necessarily um, know that in their bodies and in their minds and their hearts and they resist it um, they don't want to be uh, classified as incapable of participating in the full life that they imagine themselves having um, and when they're you know um, compelled to do all kinds of things that are not in their best interest um, they learn how to um, get around and disrupt and cause chaos so that they won't have to do what they're being forced to do. So they won't have to be stuck in um, the kind of desperate life that the system is trying to stick them in. Well, what, what are those things? For example, the, the things that they don't want to do that are not in their interest. I mean, run through some of that for, for folks. Yeah. Well, there's the, the basic things of just, um, bodies being controlled to be in particular places at particular times. Uh, it's really a complete insanity that we've, ex we accept that, you know, a, any student in any school building who's in a place that the system doesn't authorize can be punished. And it's an insane idea that we take as normal. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing that I think is just unbelievably cruel is um, the testing structures that we've, um, you know, uh, built up, um, particularly in the last 20 years, uh, where we know that giving a test to a particular 
particular student in particular circumstances will do nothing at all positive for that student's learning and will most likely damage the student, make them feel bad, cause them pain, uh, make them less confident and secure in their ability to learn and result in less learning over time. And we inflict that pain, a real violence, over and over and over again. And we don't even think it matters because they're just kids uh, and black kids, Latinx kids, indigenous kids, they're kids, they'll, they'll get over it. It's a cruelty and it's completely wrong. And you've been rebelling against that for as many years as you've been working with kids. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, you, I'd like you to say another word or two about the Baltimore Algebra Project. Explain how that fits into this, because to me, Baltimore stands out as just an extraordinary example of youth-run, youth-led, um, youth-staffed enterprises. And the Baltimore Algebra Project is at least for you where it began. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, right. I, I'm, I'm, you know, Bob Moses, uh, who I mentioned before, um, as a picture of young people organizing themselves um, to fashion and insurgency that would literally uh, undermine and overthrow the existing educational dynamics, but also economic and political dynamics in the country. And uh, he uses the analogy with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee organizing in Mississippi. And the idea is that just as Black people were able to organize for voting rights in Mississippi um, without um, leaders, um, but just in the dusty Mississippi Delta towns, ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the, the same way, students in mathematics classrooms in um, poor neighborhoods in the United States, the, the mathematics classrooms being the equivalent of the Mississippi plantations, those students can learn how to organize themselves to disrupt the education system and create a new education system that meets their needs. And what we found in Baltimore is that he's actually right, at least on a small scale, we've, we've seen young people from mathematics classrooms and after-school mathematics locations uh, figuring out how to break into the system and make it change in little ways. And with a bigger base, we can make it change in bigger ways. Yeah, I love the analogy with the, with the voting rights in the South. And I think you've found masterful ways to do it. And you use the phrase crawl spaces to talk about organizing sub rosa underneath uh, uh, and not bursting for, you know, often when people think about organizing in institutions like schools, they think about getting a grant and having a press conference and somehow you do, you've done exactly the opposite. Right. And, um, you know, I've, I've been realizing more and more how your book, Bill, uh, Fugitive Days, has was really influential for me um, in the analysis of, of the underground and how much similarity there is between um, Bob's idea of a crawl space and your idea of underground. And, you know, the um, actually, I'm just going to put the question back to you. So what, what's, what's the connection there? Well, to me, you know, the, I use the term underground in this podcast often. I use it in my teaching. And I, I use it as a metaphor, a metaphor 
for I, I sometimes um, turn from the underground to the notion of utopia, and utopia literally means nowhere, you know. And and so my my concept of 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 the underground is that it's a metaphor for doing serious work um, in which you're not under constant surveillance and under constant pressure to um, compromise or to go this way or that way at the whims of power. And that's what it's always meant to me, that, that it's not a literal space. It, it could be one foot out your front door, but it's, uh, it's not, you know, it's not Dostoevsky and, you know, sneaking around an alley. It's creating an imaginative space. And, you know, I often think, and I think you're a master of this in many ways, but I often think that if we go toe to toe with power, um, their guns against our guns, their propaganda against our propaganda. We lose every time. There's one space where we always win, and that's the imaginative space. If we can free our imaginations, if we can be poetic and prophetic at the same time, that to me is um, gives us gives us hope. Yeah. Well, um, and so the idea of a crawl space is exactly the same idea and um, I think one of the insights um, of the algebra project is that mathematics classrooms uh, for poor kids and especially for black kids are unnoticed spaces because nobody thinks anything good is going to come of them and so that's why um, focusing on the math classroom um, can be done we, you, we can do all kinds of work political education organizing work without anybody paying attention at the kids on the head because they know their time stable or doing out. Right. Say, say a bit more about that because I find that fascinating. And in, in my work in elementary schools, it was always social studies, that vague, weird term and math you had, you know, in, you know, I had to prepare for the test in math and in reading, but in social studies, ah, two hours a week, do whatever you want. And that was the space where in elementary school, we got a lot done, but I, I, I resonate to what you're saying. Oh, they're in algebra class. Who cares? They're not going to do well. Uh, let them go. And there you have utopia nowhere. Right. Exactly. And, and there's, you know, a fascinating historical uh, shift that's um, greatly underappreciated in the um, political and educational uh, sort of sphere. Um, so the, the change from the um, industrial economy to the information economy, everyone's totally familiar. Everyone's familiar with the idea that you need more education in the information economy. But something that's been missing from the analysis is that people who are assigned to low caste status um, have lost out on the possibility for employment within their caste status that they had in the industrial age. You could drop out of school at 15 or 16 or 17, and you could earn a living or at least get by in some way doing things that you can't do anymore, that don't jobs that don't exist. And we, okay, we appreciate that. So that means you need more education. Well, that makes sense, but how are you going to survive in those years while you're supposed to be getting your education, you don't have money to earn. Uh, you need to earn, be earning money in your late adolescence, uh, early adulthood. And there's no way for low caste people to 
address that economic issue. And so there's an underground economy, which has grown and grown and grown for people to survive. And there's the prison industrial complex, which is a stick on the other end that you better figure out some way to do this that's not really messing with our stuff. And so what happens in that sort of vacuum and that underanalyzed place is that people say kids need math education, but they don't mean it. But we can do math education in a way that's political. And for the algebra project, the political way of doing math with that age group, the, the adolescents, uh, young adults, the way to do political math education isn't only to sort of study social justice issues from a mathematical point of view, but it's to teach young people how to collectively imagine, articulate, and act on their beliefs. And, you know, this is like a foreign subject. How is mathematics um, an action? How is it a collective action? How is it a group of people deciding to do something and then doing it together? Well, algebra project classrooms teach mathematics that way. Mm. Um, and in teaching mathematics that way, it's also teaching political organizing. Because it's teaching collective wisdom, because it's teaching, um, you know, community engagement. Because what I find interesting, what you just said, and I want you to amplify it a little bit, um, is you're, you're not saying... Um, use mathematics to study uh, housing patterns in the city. I mean, you might do that, but that's not the core of what you're doing. You're doing something beyond shifting the content slightly. So say it, amplify that a bit. Yeah. So the, there's interesting work on how the algebra project treats um, cultural relevance. Uh, and so for the algebra project in Black communities and from in most poor communities, cultural re relevance has to do with mutual aid. It has to do with identifying problems for the community and then having the community discuss a way of approaching the problem, coming up with a consensus idea on how to approach it and then moving on the problem. It's just that the problem can be anything. And so the problem might be how to describe quantitatively, um, a, a game that you play. And so we play lots of games in the algebra project where people share an experience together and then begin to talk about how they're going to describe that experience mathematically. So we teach the mutual context of uh, an issue of ordinary experience. It doesn't have to be an issue of sort of that's identified as political, like housing or prison. Mm. It can be anything that a community wants to do. It can be a celebration. It can be making music. It can be anything. Uh, as long as we see ourselves as part of a community that's developed a consensus and then a way of that. It's a fascinating approach. And I can think of several examples of when this came to life in really remarkable and unique ways. Maybe you'd talk a bit about the Baltimore uprising in reaction to Freddie Gray and the role that the algebra project played in that, in that moment. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's, it's never um, really possible to say uh, what all the ingredients of, of um, a political event are. Um, but one thing's for sure um, is that 
when the community in West Baltimore um, uh, began to um, confront the police about their attack on Freddie Gray, um, some of the young people who were involved in those uh, actions uh, against the police were Baltimore Algebra Project students who had experience in organizing and experience in, in protests. And um, so th there was sort of a, a pre-existing um, um, political organization that uh, existed among young people uh, that was accessible on the ground level to um, hundreds, thousands of alienated youth in West Baltimore who could immediately connect themselves to not only the Baltimore Algebra Project, but several grassroots community organizations that had political experience. And I assume that this happens everywhere. And so I remember a particularly um, uh, a huge march uh, the Saturday before the, the building started to burn on the Monday. Um, the, the march was through West Baltimore. It was led by um, some Algebra Project youth, and it was marshaled by Algebra Project youth. Um, but what was extraordinary was that other young people who I'm sure had never heard of the Algebra Project, um, but who were angry uh, because of the circumstances, noticed, realized, recognized that they could sort of authoritatively take over the street, not just um, take over the street with, you know, dirt bikes the way they're they're good at doing also, but take over the street to make a political statement. And their joy at seeing other young people like themselves uh, in this relatively formalized political action was really extraordinary and beautiful. Um, and I, I assume that takes place. I mean, you, you've seen this over over and over. So I assume this takes place in a lot of a lot of. Yeah, except that I think that what was what was amazing to me about that was that a lot of the kids who'd been through the experience of the algebra project had um, took a kind of leadership roles in the sense of being uh, uh, looked to as people who had experience in organizing, in mutual aid, in collective action, and and it was um, from those experiences there is something remarkably powerful about seeing kids organizing peer-to-peer -peer, um, uh, horizontally without a lot of hierarchical. And, and I I'd, I guess I'd like you to talk about two things. One is last time I visited you in Baltimore, we went to that, that building, that center where the Algebra Project has an office, but there are a zillion other offices there. And maybe you could talk about peer-to-peer -peer work um, that you've been a part of, you know, the Algebra Project, yes, but so many other aspects of kids using the skills they have, teaching the skills they have, making an income out of that. Speak a little bit about that that center, that building. Yeah. So the, um, you know, the the crux of that economic political problem that we were talking about earlier is the lack of income in the adolescence, and so. What the Baltimore Algebra Project does and the Young People's Project, which it's a sort of youth after school stuff, we pay young people to, to do math work with their peers and we pay them good money 
uh, we try to pay enough money that somebody can concentrate on their education and can share their knowledge and skills with peers. And so this is a way of addressing the economic issue, tying it to the educational issue, and then creating a political base because just the way unions are able to attract to political education with people who are coming to a a factory or used to be coming to a factory or a dock or a port or something and organize at the place of employment. We create the place of employment as peer-to-peer knowledge work, pay people, and then do the political education there. So I'd, I'd like to just say a, a word about a national um, uh, development that's coming along these lines, that there's a group of young people from um, six or seven states at the moment. Some are algebra project people, some are, some are others. And they're now demanding a national math literacy core uh, with the idea that same way the federal government puts $1.5 billion into ROTC every year, the federal government should be funding employment for young people to teach math to their peers every year. And so this is a, a, a clear demand um, at the federal level. It's, it's saying we don't want to be told that there isn't enough money in our state budget. We don't want to be told that we need to be accountable to some ridiculous tests. We're able to teach each other effectively. We should be paid for this because it's valued work by from the society values the work. And the federal government should do it because the federal government owes us A, reparations, but B, it owes us as young people who've been failed by the educational arrangements of the country. That is uh, so brilliant because it, it, it interfaces with war, policing, militarization, and knowledge and what we really need. Uh, I want you to go back, though. Man, this is fantastic. I mean, I, don't, I didn't know about that initiative. But when you talk about folks, the kids in Baltimore who you've worked with for many, many years being paid, you're talking about something very similar to what you just said on the federal level. That is, there's a huge budget for teaching in Baltimore City, there's a huge budget for teaching math. And you found a way, when you say we pay folks a, a decent wage, you're you're tapping into money. You're not raising it from the MacArthur Foundation, I assume. So you're tapping into money that's there. How do you do that? Well, yeah, historically, about half the money that the Baltimore Algebra Project has paid has been from, from private foundations. But half has come from the school system. And it's come from the school system by organizing a demand and, uh, you know, interrupting school board meetings, um, just terrorizing uh, school board members by mentioning the word algebra, like, because they're afraid you might ask them an algebra question. So they're, <laughs> they're, they want to get you out of the space pretty quickly. Um, but also being able, you know, there's, there's this sort of the, the school system uses this as a safety valve to you know, try to diminish um, student protest uh, by saying, well, we'll, we'll pay you off. Um, and that's an interesting dynamic. But the, the core idea is uh, that in an insurgency that's going to actually change the American educational system has to change the economics of the system. And the economics of the system is, is rotten to the core, as we, as we know. There are this hideous um, tax arrangements that fund education. And then uh, what happens is that most of the money in Baltimore, it's about $1.3 billion. Most of the money flows into the city and then right out of the city. 
into the pockets of people who live elsewhere. Um, and, you know, some of the money goes to teachers who live in Baltimore City. Some of the money, less and less, goes to cafeteria workers and that kind of thing who live in Baltimore City. But the great majority of the money is going into the pockets of already wealthy people elsewhere. And so the, the economic and political question is connected to this education question. The people from outside don't teach our children well, don't know the culture, don't know how to teach our children, and don't care about teaching our children. But the people who already live in the community, the students themselves, care, know about the culture, and are effective teachers. Mm. So they should be paid. And the economic arrangement that diverts money purportedly for their education into other jurisdictions that has to be undone so that the money is going into the very communities that are supposed to be helped, revitalizing the economics of those communities and giving capital for the development of local economic development. So you mentioned disrupting school board meetings, and I have a t-shirt that I wear sometimes that says, no education, no life, with a big red X on it, and that's a Baltimore Algebra Project t-shirt last time i was there a couple of kids um got me to buy a couple of those shirts and and uh they're beautiful but tell about a, a demonstration at the school board where that was kind of the slogan and you said they say the word algebra and the school board wants to get them out of the space describe actually you know what what has happened in in an instance or two well, there, there was uh, a fascinating um, event before the pandemic where there was a debate about should the school resource, resource officers, they're actually police in Baltimore, should they be armed? And the student position, of course, was no. The school board was waffling about whether they were going to um, you know, authorize the police to carry weapons. And uh, so there was a, a board meeting that, that where the young people stood up, they stood in a line in front of the boards, so blocking the board from the cameras that were televising the, the meeting. It was just a brilliant tactic. And so they controlled the mic for a while, um, explaining you know, their, their position. And the board president, who's a short woman, couldn't possibly be seen over this line of students she wasn't on TV and she was like, maybe her mic was still working, but it was kind of a ridiculous situation. She had to walk around the students to stand in front of them and then turn around and talk to them, trying to explain that he was going to do what they wanted anyway. It was hilarious. Mm. But the point, the point for me is that when you do demonstrations, your audience is really yourselves to understand that you have the power and can take back the power to determine public public policy. And so it was just a beautiful example of young people learning that they could control the media. You know, I love that example. And, and when you say the audience is yourself, I, I think it's so important. I, I always have argued that demonstrations, street actions, organizing and activism are connected, but different. And if you're organizing, you, you really want folks to, um, understand that the actions you take have to be pedagogical in the sense that you learn something and you taught something. You know, I get nervous when people talk about numbers at the rally or 
uh, or I looked terrific on the nightly news. That's not the point at all. Did you learn something? What did you learn? How can you put that into practice? And did you teach something? If you didn't teach and you didn't learn, it had no pedagogical purpose. And then I think the demonstration is terrible. But the thing you're describing, the pedagogical purpose is brilliant. It not only projected to the world something about the, the wisdom of youth, but it also projected to themselves that we can get things done in the following way. I think that's a, a tremendous example. Yeah, we have a, a wonderful uh, young man. He's, he's in his 30s now, but um, worked with the Algebra Project for a long time, uh, Xavier Cheatham. And he wrote a, um, an article once called Pedicacy, um, merging the words pedagogy and advocacy. And he goes through the Baltimore, the, sorry, the Algebra Project five-step pedagogy that starts with a physical experience and goes through people discussing their experience and then formalizing and symbolizing mathematical symbols. He describes street actions in the same way as you start with a physical experience. You, you process it, you talk about it, then you come up with demands out of the, your experience and, and the formalizing of the demands as a policy position is the, you know, the, the last stage. It's a, just a wonderful article. Okay, you have to send that to me because <laughs> that is really perfect. It's, it's because he's taking the algebra project as an example, but he's absolutely underlining the point that politics action activism has to be pedagogical and mm -hmm. when we say it that way a lot of actors are what are you talking about but that's a perfect example of what we're talking about mm -hmm. you know jay one of the things that we uh do in this podcast occasionally is we have a little segment we call book of books and i'm i'm of course putting two of your books on on, on the list immediately one is um educating for insurgency which i think is one of the really super important books of the last several years in terms of, and, and its relevance is to teachers at all levels and organizers at all levels. But then you wrote a book called The Power in the Room, Radical Education Through Youth Organizing and Employment. And a lot of what you've been talking about is, is in that book. Um, so those are, those are two books that I want to add. I wanted to ask you what you're reading and, and if there are things that, that folks should know about that, um, that have come into your view uh, that you think are worth sharing? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's so many things. One is a, um, a book by Lawrence Brown called um, Black Butterfly um, that studies sort of the geography um, of Baltimore and of uh, restrictions um, in every dimension, health, um, housing, education. Uh, and it's just a great, um, exploration of how uh, Baltimore uh, came to have the dynamics that it has. And um, I'm also going to mention a kind of wonky book, but um, by David Graeber, uh, Debt the First 5,000 Years. It's one of the best books. I love that book. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, the, the connection is that he really challenges us to imagine different possibilities and you know, this is the problem with the economy. And it's what you were saying before about utopia that, um, you know, for me, idealism and realism are the same thing. Um, you're when you're idealistic, uh, because you think things can be different, they can be different. And, um, the reality can match the ideal. And this is, uh, it's a fascinating book, um, uh, trying to figure out how our economic arrangements can be completely different. 
And I think we really need to think more in the education world about how the economics work um, if we're going to be able to um, create the insurgency we need to overthrow the, to the education system. I think that's so spot on. I also think this, uh, I appreciate your saying the ideal and the real are on the same plane. You know, I, I wrote a book called Demand the Impossible, but the idea that somehow we have to separate these things that we have uh, our dreams of freedom. And then over here we have reality and the two can never meet. Actually, the important work is finding a way to make those, to spend time on those dreams, on those utopian ideas, because if you don't know where you're going, you're going to make missteps all the time in the present. You don't have to have a, a blueprint, but you have to have a vision. And um, right. you are a visionary educator, and I appreciate you so much. I, I wonder, before we go, if you could um, tell us how, how, how can people contact you or the Baltimore Algebra Project or this wonderful project you were describing around math education? Sure. Uh, well, gillen.jay at gmail.com. Spell, spell Gillen. G-I-L-L-E-N as in Nicholas. So I, I, I say that because I've misspelled your name more than once. <laughs> well, I, I, I could go on forever. I really appreciate you, Jay, and I, I wish you all the best and best wishes to your community. And so after Bill and Jay said goodbye, so much, they Bill, kept going. And I found a couple snippets from the hot mic worth preserving. Take a listen. You, you've been a teacher, an organizer, an activist your whole life. You have been somebody who's committed yourself, body and soul uh, and mind, to the Black Freedom Movement. And you're a white person. So how do you understand the conversation going on today around allies, for example, um, comrades? How do you see that in your work? Yeah, I was so glad you didn't ask me that question earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it's the question for me you know it's right. another one yeah um you know for me um it's a put your bucket down where you are kind of thing uh that which is this you know a slogan that comes from booker t washington um and bob moses uses it frequently and his use of it is you know find a place and stay put yeah. Just yeah. stay, stay there. Right. And then things will develop around you and whatever it is that develops, you know, see what you can do. And the, the place that I kind of accidentally found to put in is, you know, 95% black community. And so here I am and what is there to do? Right. You know, for me, the conversation about allies, you know, has always been irritating. I could send you something I wrote about it, but it's irritating in the sense that it has the stench of Lady Bountiful. You know, I'm your ally and I'm bringing you. And a lot of your work touches on this without necessarily being explicit. That is to say, you're not trying in your teaching to lift the poor bastards up to your level. You're actually trying to see and and engage the humanity that you assume is already there you're not trying to make people better in some you know in some kind of christian sense you're you're um you're shoulder to shoulder and so i don't think allies is the right word i think comrade is a is a better choice um because then I, and this is really how i see you and i 
together in this. And it's because you believe, and I believe, that I want to live in a world without white supremacy. It's not that I want you to come up to my level. It's that my life will be better if we get rid of the structures of white supremacy. You know, and, and just like our lives will be better when we get off the precarious perch of male supremacy, right? And so you want to be an ally to women's freedom. But no, you want to be a, a comrade to it, right? An ally is yeah. too patronizing for me. Well, ally, it definitely, and, and it really, honestly, um, I don't feel like I do things for other people. I do things for myself. And I don't have that many illusions about it. You know, when somebody, you know, young people come to me, they need a job. And I try to figure out how to create employment to make that happen. But the reason I'm doing that is because I can't sleep when I'm thinking that this person needs a job and maybe I could do something about it and I'm not doing something about it. I'm doing it so I can sleep. Correct. I'm not doing it, it. <laughs> primarily for somebody else. And it happens because we're human that doing things for other people is what makes us human. And we can't live without each other. We can't live in isolation. We can't live in estrangement. And so the work is, is in our own interest. It's in, it's in self-interest and it's in community interest because, you know, the, and, and the thing that I have the most interesting conversations around is my ethics class. Mm-hmm. You know, the first, the first prompt is, are you a moral person? Mm-hmm. What's the evidence? Uh-huh. And everybody has the same default. I'm nice. I'm good. I'm not always great, but I'm good. I'm nice. See, like I gave money to that guy outside Starbucks yesterday. See, I'm a good person. And and then I say, had you been living in the days of slavery and you paid your bills on time and never beat your children, could you claim that you were a moral person? You know, um, and then they start to get troubled. And the funny thing is, six weeks into it, I have another prompt. Uh, and, and pretty much it's a different way of phrasing it, but pretty much people say, I'm nice. I'm pretty good. You know, and, and we, we, we cut social ethics out, but the reality is that it's not a question. It's partly a question of sleeping at night. And it's also partly a question of the precariousness of the society we have is so obvious that we're all living in terror all the time of each other, of other countries, of people, you know, we're just in terror. And then you see someone like, you see the organized right wing come along and organize it as a political project. You must fear everybody else. You must, But just in our ordinary life, you know, the, the default position is toxic individualism. You know, mm-hmm. public safety becomes own a gun, public uh, housing, you know, public education becomes uh, buy the best product you can buy. It's so sick that it permeates every level. This is what I, I feel. I find myself just railing against, and now I'm railing right here with you. Well, I, that's 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 good. I'm glad you're railing, and I totally agree. Yeah. Okay, before we say goodbye for today. Here's a small homework assignment. Write the word insurgency at the top of the page and then make a list of every word that comes to mind as you look at insurgency. Arrange the words in a pattern that feels like poetry. 
Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human as we fight for freedom. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast, Ergo, and to Malika Leem, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. This episode of Under the Tree was written and hosted by Bill Ayer and by me, Malik Aline. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morella. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a location of love. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time. <laughs>